this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello everybody and welcome to New Books in Folklore, which is one of the many podcast channels you can find on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Hopkin, I'm one of the hosts of this podcast, and today my guest is Dr. Alexander Langlands, who's going to be talking about craft and inquiry into the origins and true meaning of traditional crafts. Dr. Alexander Langlands, welcome to New Books in Folklore. Thank you very much for having me. Before I say anything else, I should ask, did I say that right, craft? Yeah, I, it'll do. I mean, it depends from where you are in the country. Craft, craft. Uh, probably, you know, craft maybe, um, but uh, perhaps a slight Scandinavian take on it, craft. Um, I usually say craft to differentiate it from craft or craft. Right. And so we're going to come to that in a minute. But first of all, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in crafts or crafts. Well, I um, I, th- I mean, it goes right back to childhood. I, I lived in the countryside and I spent a lot of time outside uh, and I used to go and play on farms and I was always getting dirty and playing with sticks and making camps and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I love the outside. And and when I went to uh, school, uh, I was very interested in history. So what happened when it came to choosing a university degree is I thought, well, I like history, I like the past, and I like being outside. Uh, and it struck me that archaeology allowed me to combine both those natural interests um, so I took a degree in archaeology, uh, and I think out of that, you know, we, you, we're not only as an archaeologist, although actually, to be honest, I spend quite a lot of time inside a computer and reading books just like everyone else um, in academia, but you do spend a, a good amount of your time outside and, and physically engaged with the world, um, and, and I like that state of being. So it then became a short hop from studying past societies who used crafts, to improve their worlds, to actually then doing those crafts and experimenting with those crafts as a way of understanding those worlds. So that's kind of, in short form, my journey uh, into the world of craft. So normally at this point in the interview, I ask people to tell me how they became a folklorist story. But since you're not one officially, I won't do that. Um, Although your work is very folklore friendly. And in fact, your book, Craft or Craft, um, and for listeners, I should just specify that this is craft spelt C-R-A-E-F-T. It's an old-fashioned spelling of the word. Anyway, your book was discussed on a public folklore listserv called Pub Law, where a 
well-known public folklorist in the US, Millie Rawn, described it as follows. She said, to me, this beautifully written book is basically a cautionary tale about the loss of knowledge, wisdom, power and skill embedded in tradition and our ignoring that knowledge at our peril. It's not a treatise, more a pain to the human condition, not the first to lament our intellectual, spiritual and physical disconnect with the modern world or acknowledge the periodic arts and crafts revivals. The writer says we have the power to transform our world and ourselves if we go back to our roots as humans, as makers in inverted commas. Uh, so that was a, a little kind of review you got on a folklore listserv, which encouraged me to get in touch with you for this podcast. Oh, well, I'm glad you did. I mean, um, whilst it probably doesn't fit into certain brands of folklore, you know, it is about folk life. It is about practices. And, you know, to a certain extent, it is about beliefs as well. Um, the underpinning underpinning beliefs of the past societies that I've that I've studied before. So, um, so, and I, you know, and I, tri- I, I, I'm currently at the moment writing a paper about uh, belief systems in the early medieval period. And I, you know, I'm often finding myself looking at articles uh, from uh, folklore journals. So I, I do, I do occupy that world. And, and there's a lot of, there's a lot in folklore, you know, excavating folklore is a very useful way of accessing past societies. That's wonderful to hear. I certainly didn't mean to say that you were, not appropriate for this <laughs> podcast in any way it's just I kind of was making the distinction between somebody who has trained and identifies as a folklorist yeah whereas I see that you've trained and identified as an archaeologist and historian mm. but use folklore as folklorists use historians and archaeology to help their scholarship yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway tell us how this book came about and in the process, tell us about this distinction between craft and craft. Well, how, let's start with how the book came about. I um, So I worked on a whole bunch of t- uh, television uh, programmes for uh, BBC around historic farming. Uh, but back in 2003, we did a series called Tales from the Green Valley, which was all about running a farm as it would have been run in the year 1620. Um, we came back a few years later with a series called Victorian Farm. Uh, after that, we did Edwardian Farm and then Wartime Farm. And I guess it was in the process of making those programs that I really got a window into um, farming life, but the role in which crafts played within farming life. So it wasn't just crafts for crafts' sake. It was actually sort of seeing crafts functioning. And I, I, as an archaeologist as well, of course, I'd spent quite a lot of time studying past societies and engaged in what we sometimes call experimental archaeology. So uh, kind of mocking up, uh, uh, conducting experiments, if you like, from archaeological deposits, trying to reconstruct an archaeological process or a historic process, and then testing it to see how effective it was and what it can tell us about past societies. So I've done sort of all sorts of things, as, as well as a, a small holding where I grew quite a lot of my own food and I had bees and chickens and um, did all sorts of um, stuff. All, all of that, ex- those experiences in a sort of 10-year process had caused me to sort of really think through craft and the action of craft. And I think I talk a little bit about that in the book, that sort of journey, if you like. I mean, it wasn't some great epiphany, really. It was a kind of sense that we are losing ways of doing things. And these ways of doing things in the past 
were intelligent um, and, and within them there was a sort of embedded wisdom. Now, the, the title of the book, then really that kind of was a eureka moment in the sense that I've been reading the works of King Alfred, this sort of great uh, English king, Alfred the Great, this English king who had spent much of his early life um, staving off the Viking threat and he'd really sort of rescued England or the fledgling kingdom of England from the brink, really, of total collapse. Um, so Al- Alfred, when he'd um, when he successfully uh, p- p- pushed the Vikings back, he then turned his hands to writing a sort of ideological campaign, if you like, to try and keep everyone on board, keep everyone Christian, and keep them all educated. And and Alfred himself personally translated a number of. Um, sources, ancient sources, classical sources, uh, in his bid to see all the well-born young men in the kingdom learn both Latin and English. So he translates classical sources from Latin into English. And it was in these translations that he uses the word creft as a gloss for power, wisdom, knowledge and skill and and Alfred seems to be describing something that I thought well you know we we kind of lost that because craft certainly in Britain has you know it has a meaning I mean we can all argue what craft uh, argue what we think craft is and there are probably as many definitions of craft as there are people in in the United Kingdom and but to me this thing that we lost uh, was reflected in the fact that we couldn't quite translate or find a translation for Alfred's use of the word creft. Um, so that's in part how I stumbled on that word, really, because it is it is a form, I believe, uh, crafting. It is a form of wisdom. It is a form of knowledge, a resourcefulness, and it does give you a certain power. You also describe it, I think, as a means of engagement. It's a state of being engaged. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's um, Senate, actually. That's Richard Senate. He he says that it's a state of being engaged. So I think beyond the the knowledge, power, wisdom, um, responses, physical responses to your environment, using craft, craft as action, I think there's a deep-rooted sense in the human condition that making is something that we have done for so long that it defines us. And I I liked what Senate was doing there with this idea that it's a state of being engaged. It's a state of awareness. Without trying to make it sound a little bit too mystical, um, it is a state of awareness and engagement around properties and materials and being within the world. So then you go through these chapters. I think there are 13 or 14 different examples of crafts which you give the history of and tell us lots of interesting facts about, whilst also giving us something of your own memoir in in relation to whichever craft this is. You begin with making hay. What made you want to start there? Um, I, I just went through a phase of making hay myself and I... I just thought, goodness me! So, and there was, was, was a, a, a historian or a history of somebody who wrote history of farming back in the nineteenth century called Henry, Henry Stevens, uh, and he talked about the art of haymaking. And I just thought, well, actually, in some ways, it is it is fits into my definition of craft. It re- it really is a very intelligent skill, and haymaking is absolutely fundamental to farming, and certainly livestock farming. In the sense that you, without hay, without hay in your in your barn, you simply don't have the feed 
to get your livestock through the winter months. So it is absolutely crucial to uh, the, the, the farm, the successful running of, of a farm, which has livestock on it. And in olden times, you needed livestock on the farm because you needed their dung and so on and so forth. Um, so, but, but making hay isn't easy. and it, it really isn't easy. Today, yes, it is. Tractors, um, weather reports, um, you know, we've got diesel, we've got all sorts at our disposal. Uh, and and we, we don't have to be quite as intelligent in, in terms of in the way in which we think about making hay. Um, and I made hay a couple of times and it really did open up from, up to me, uh, again, that sense of engagement to make hay successfully. It's a physical thing. It's a knowing thing. It's a knowledge. It's a wisdom. And it's one thing uh, when we talk about craftsmanship to make a beautiful old hay scythe, to make a beautiful hay rake. These are seen as the crafts. But for me, it's quite another thing to actually make hay with those crafted objects. You know, and for, that for me extended this definition of, 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 of um, craft and of, of making and doing. Right. I think elsewhere in the book, you describe how you were trying to do something in the garden and the strimmer, I think, was broken and you went and found a scythe and we were then able to deal with whatever needed dealing with in the garden. Yeah. So that was I I'd, I'd picked up this scythe, uh, you know, when I when I moved to the country. So I so I grew up in the country Um, cut, cut, cut a long story short. I grew up in the country as a kid. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Uh, and to this day, oh, God, I wish I could go back to those days just bimbling around in the countryside as a kid. Uh, and then, uh, of course, you know, you grow up and you get serious. And I found myself in London and I'd been studying there and I was working in central London. I was just sick to death of it. And I moved to the countryside. And I because, really, you know, part of me just thought, let's just do it. Let's just move to the countryside. And, of course, as soon as I got down there, I thought, yes, I'm going to buy myself a scythe. So I bought this scythe uh, and I kind of just hung it up and you know looked at it and it was part of the countryside and uh and I had a I inherited quite a big garden there with this with the cottage that I rented and and um I had this this contraption called a strimmer and I don't know if people know these things this is basically an engine very noisy engine and truculent engine on the on the end of a steel tube and the other end of the steel tube is a piece of nylon cord which just flays round super quick and just flays the grass. So it's a way of cutting the grass and keeping the grass down in the garden, keeping it nice and, and well tended. And this contraption just would not start. I mean, it was just terrible. You used to have to strip the engine down, clean the carburetor, clean the filters, um, t- you know, endless tinkering with this wretched contraption. And I just couldn't get it to work. And But I wanted to sort of, everything was slightly overgrown. And having just moved into the cottage on this estate, I didn't want the um, land agent, the person who ran the estate, thinking that I wasn't taking care of the garden. So I ended up getting, in desperation, getting the scythe out. And I, I, I started off and it was going reasonably well. And very fortunately for me, uh, the, the, the gamekeeper pulled up. And this is a, this is a chap who, oh, he must have been in his 70s then. And he said to me, oh, I can see you've never used a scythe before, boy. And he set about there and then showing me how to use this scythe and how to sharpen it and how to use it. And from that moment on, I just started using the scythe in the garden. And I actually found it effective. I found it cheap. I found it quiet. I got better at doing it. Was I as quick as doing it with the strimmer? Maybe not quite as quick, but I didn't have to go and buy petrol for it. I didn't have to repair it. You know, the scythe, I just had to keep it sharp. And I could get it out at any point and just cut with it. And one of the things I found, which I really enjoyed about the garden, is it kind of changed the character and the shape of the garden. You you know, scythe is about 
kind of curves, if you like. You're swiping at things, whereas the strimmer is more kind of boxy and the lawnmower is more boxy. With the scythe, you're swiping. And it just created this sort of variable stubble around the garden where some flowers, you know, you, know, you might get through some grass, leave some a bit longer, some down. And, and it created this kind of variations which allowed certain flowers to blossom, which brought in different insects. So it had a dramatic effect. And that, and that was a moment for me where I thought, yes, this is, this is something I've enjoyed doing. And I went on from there to use scythes to sort of experiment with haymaking in, um, actually in, in France. Spain and in in the UK as well. And did you develop any kind of um, Ross Poldark like muscles across your torso <laughs> as you went throughout this? <laughs> I don't. I don't remember ever, ever. I mean, you certainly keep fit uh, doing this kind of work. Um, but my my my, I have f- uh, probably stronger recollections of um, lower back. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. As a consequence of overuse. So I don't, you know, I, I, um, uh, and in fact, I actually got a back support, uh, which, which helped somewhat. Um, so yeah, so no, no, uh, kind of, uh, sunlit, uh, rippling, uh, muscle structures <laughs> on, on me, I'm afraid. You also mentioned that you went to a place in Spain where they've been making pitchforks to make hay since the 12th century. And you say a decent one takes 10 years to make. Yes, they use a, basically they use a nettle wood, um, which is what, <laughs> you know, this is again working with nature. You know, why why do all the work yourself when you can let nature and time do the work for you? And they, they grow uh, what's called a nettle wood, um, and they get it to a certain height, and then they start prune. They prune it, and they train the branches so that they grow into a fork. So after about ten to fifteen years, the fork will have essentially grown itself. Um, and at that point, you can cut it down, um, uh, uh, bend it into. If you need to do any final manipulations, do that, uh, and then stick it up in the barn, let it season for six to nine months, and. Um, off you go. And of course, because it's been grown that way, uh, it has remarkable structural integrity. Um, so instead of making a fork up from bits and pieces where you need to, at some point, create some kind of fixtures and fittings to hold the thing together, this thing is he- held together by its natural self. Um, so again, I thought it's just another remarkable piece of technology. So the next chapter is called Sticks and Stones. And you say that a human and a stick is where Kreft began. But you begin the chapter actually talking about a snooker player. So why start there? Well, um, why did I start there? I just felt that that was, you know, that's a high point of a human being using a stick and the mastery of using a stick. And, you know, that for me is a, a launch pad into exploring sticks just for listeners who aren't familiar, snooker is what exactly? Well, snooker is is, is a British form of billiards, uh, but on a much bigger table, uh, and it's much harder to play than than billiards. Um, and uh, the snooker player is a chap called Ronnie O'Sullivan, who's incredibly famous, um, remarkable sportsman. Uh, and he just, um, th- this is a man basically at one with his sport and with a stick, and his achievements in the sport are quite remarkable. Um, so I take his that one particular achievement, a sort of record-breaking achievement, as a launchpad to explore sticks and how sticks really mark a point in the human journey uh, where we begin, I think, our journey into craft. Now, as an archaeologist, of course, when we talk about 
the Paleolithic, the Mesolithic and the Neolithic, these, the, the old, middle and new Stone Age, they're defined by stone technology, uh, which is essentially napping certain types of stone, in particular flint, uh, to create a whole range of tools that, that get ever more sophisticated the closer you get to the Neolithic uh, and the Bronze Age. Um, now, the great thing about the stones is that they survive in the archaeological record, okay, because they don't rot away. But sticks do, unless we find them in waterlogged contexts or uh, they've been desiccated, okay, they'll just rot away. Just like any other stick in your garden, if you leave it there long enough, it won't be there, okay, when you come back to find it. So we don't have archaeological evidence for stick usage in the very, very distant past. So what I try and do with that chapter is just explore ways in which I've seen sticks being used in the present day, but going back into the 19th, into the 18th, 17th centuries uh, and beyond. And I just look at the range of sticks and stick usage um, uh, in, in, in the craft world. And I, and I do see it as a moment at which we go from being a species that is essentially an animal, I think, uh, to a species that is a maker of things. You say in this chapter, in terms of sticks, you're especially partial to shepherd's crooks. Yeah, I, uh, shepherd's crooks. So this is a really good example of how a stick um, is really helps you, facilitates you to do a certain job. Now, the, the, you get crooks and cliques. A crook is a shepherd's crook, as which we're probably more familiar with any sort of nativity plays that you might see. Uh, the the shepherd is always depicted with this crook, which is obviously a stick that you can get round a hook with a hook on the end, which you can get round the neck of a, a sheep and draw it in close to you. Okay, we also have cliques. Cliques have got a very uh, a much smaller hook, and that's used to get the to grab the legs of the sheep, and particularly the lamb, to pull it towards you. Now, why is a shepherd's clique um, so useful and so fundamental to the work of the shepherd? It's simply this: there's a point which from which we're a lamb. Okay, it goes from being something that sort of stands there trembling and bleating to something that is lightning quick, okay? And that, you know, in my limited experience, that's something that almost happens overnight. Uh, you know, one minute you can hop in the pen, pick the lamb up, check it for condition, feel it, is it feeding properly, check its mouth, check its feet, so on and so forth, okay? You can check your lambs to check them on the right course and they're going to do well. And then you get to a point where you... You, you, you walk into the lambing pen, you go to catch that lamb and it's off and you can't get anywhere near to it. And the, what the clique does is just, just gives you those extra few days to a week when with the stick, you can get close to that lamb. And what it enables you to do is to handle the animal, you know, familiarise, that animal familiarises itself with you. That's part of the building the relationship but more important, you can check it for condition. You can check it's on the right course because a shepherd wouldn't get paid for every lamb that popped out of the sheep. It would get paid for the lambs that get to a certain age. Um, and it's only at that point the shepherd would get paid. So it's absolutely critical to, to the shepherd's job, the, the, the shepherd's clique. From there, we move on to beekeeping. This chapter is called The Skep Making Beekeeper. And skeps, I gather, are basket hives. Yeah, that's right. Skep, um, it comes from it. It's an old English word for a type of basket. Um, and very traditionally, 
uh, bees would be kept in all sorts of different types of receptacles. I mean, you know, some of them, I think some of our oldest surviving examples are of tree trunks, which have been nat- naturally hollowed out, um, which are kind of top and bottom. And then the bees, uh, they love living in tree trunks because they do that in the, in the wild. Um, in ancient Egypt, we see the use of sort of clay drums to keep bees in. Um, but other methods involve uh, wicker work, so wattle using willow to make a wattle basket and then packing that with daub. Uh, and the method that I was particularly interested in was in using coiled straw and like a bramble cane to bind that co- coiled straw into a basket. You describe in this chapter wanting to make a skep just from stuff grown in your garden. How did that go? Um, it, 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 in the end, it went okay, but it took a very, very long time. I mean, I it was a sort of moment. Of, I, I call it a moment of craft puritanism. Um, <laughs> you know, I <laughs> I really wanted to um, see if I could out of from my own garden if I could um, harvest enough material to make a bee skep to then catch a swarm and to produce honey in my garden without bringing any external products or materials in. That was the plan. Um, Now, of course, to do that, it meant I had to grow my own straw, which meant uh, something like nine months from sowing to harvesting. Uh, Well, actually, no, it was longer than that. I was getting on for a year, to be honest, from sowing to harvesting. So I had to do that. I had to source the best part of 200 metres worth of bramble cane from my own garden, which took absolutely ages. And then once I'd kind of made the skep, I then realised I needed to to house it in something. Uh, So I then made another, uh, like a wickerwork basket out of some willow from the garden uh, with a wickerwork roof. And then I had to thatch all of that with more bramble cane. So by the time I'd finished this thing, I can honestly say I could have built an extension on my cottage um, for all of the effort and energy that I'd put in. Was the honey good? Uh, yeah, yes, it was. It was actually. I mean, I, I, I don't have a sweet tooth, so I, I'm not, you know, I'm not that wedded to to honey necessarily. Um, but you know, there's there's nothing like fresh honey taken from the hive um, on a, on a, a toasted bun is really something quite remarkable. Pungent, flowery, you know, medicinal. It's it's just remarkable stuff. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. That's wonderful. The next chapter was one I was particularly partial to myself because it's called Taming the Wilds and you're describing various ways of dividing up the landscape, hedgerows and dry stone walls. And being a Brit who lives in the US, one of the things I really miss is hedgerows. You talk about the wire fences that one sees all over the place and you you describe them as damaging aesthetically but also in other ways. So why are hedgerows the better option apart from being prettier well um they support life uh, is one thing um you know a hedgerow made up of three four five six seven eight nine ten species 
uh, can support an amazing range of birds and insects. Um, they can act as windproof barriers as well, so they can protect crops. Uh, the hedgerow margins themselves, and not just the hedges, but the margins as well, can support an amazing diversity of creatures. And I think they are an absolutely crucial corollary or corridor through the current agricultural landscape through which wildlife ha- needs to move. And of course, they're so ancient themselves. Some of, some of our hedgerows in, in, in Britain, you know, are a thousand years old. Um, they're so ancient that, you know, there's almost a kind of uh, a biodiversity or, or an environment. They're an environment in their own right. Um, and they're sources of fuel. They're sources of raw materials. They're sources of fruits. They're sources of nuts. I mean, you know, I, I there's only, of course, there is, of course, only one reason why we don't have hedges uh, and we replace hedges with wire fencing, and it's simply because they're cheaper. It's cheaper to do so. One of the things I learned from this is that hedgerows take quite a lot of maintenance. So even if they're thousands of years old, they still need to be looked after. Yeah, you need to look after a hedgerow. You need to revisit every six to ten years, depending on the type of hedge. So it's quite a lot of work. Yeah, it's quite a lot of work. But but that's a value judgment we're making on what is and isn't a lot of work. Um, yeah, it's quite a lot of work. Um, and I don't deny that. And I, you know, but, but, you know, I have a slightly over romanticized view of the world, I guess. I'm sure if I spent uh, just one winter out in the cold hedging, I would be sick of it. <laughs> but, uh, that, I, you know, that, that's the question we need to pose is where is where does the value lie in the hedge? And actually, even though it's quite a lot of work, we are seeing in the UK certain institutions, public and private, are investing the money in good hedgerows for the simple fact that they do such an important job to the environment, that we recognise that. They are, as you say, very pretty. They are also sources of material. I mean, you know, it's a lot of work to maintain a hedgerow, but once you've gone along a hedgerow, you've either pleached it, so that trimmed it with or brushed it and trimmed it down, or whether you've laid it, you take out a whole load of material, which then can be used to make faggots, can be used as firewood, can be used to make charcoal, can be used to make all sorts of everyday objects. I mean, my, my current pet project at the moment is I'm trying to make 10 things from a hedgerow that are otherwise being made from plastic. Uh, and, and that includes clothes pegs, uh, brushes, uh, baskets, uh, mats. I'm just looking at all sorts of different things that can actually just be made with a hedgerow. And, you know, hedgerows year on year, you need to pleach, trim a hedge at least every three years. And by that, I mean, once it's a good thick hedge, you you need to come along and just trim it down, cut out the growth hormones and tighten it up so that it remains a stockproof barrier. Um, but laying hedges is slightly different when the when the the you plant your hedge out. Uh, it's quite a feeble barrier to start with. After about seven to ten years, it's much stronger. But you then need to lay it down. Um, so you make an incision at the base of every plant and you lay it in to itself. Trim off the top, and then it will grow up much thicker. Um, and it's in those processes that you pull out lots of material, which this byproducts. Uh, it, the byproducts of which are, you know, brash, uh, twigs, kindling, faggot wood, or, or indeed firewood. 
You say that hedges have become more of a nuisance to farmers and landowners and councils, and the standard approach has been to machine flail indiscriminately and to such a degree that many are sick from canker and neglect. And then you cite writer and environmentalist Roger Deakin, who says that our relationship with hedges has come to reflect our disdain for nature. Honestly, I was almost crying when I read that. (laughs) Well, I I, I came across this thing the other day. I was in the... um... Uh, I was in the, the builders' merchants, and there's a garden centre out the back, uh, and I came across this stuff called like, like a weed. It's a weed suppressant membrane. Okay, <laughs> right. So it's this like roll of like plastic membrane that you put down to stop weeds from growing. Okay, you got it. You do you know the stuff I'm talking about? No, but I'm not much of a gardener. Okay, well you could you know you get this stuff and you like. You lay it down and then you puncture a little hole in it and you put your beautiful little bush in and then over the weed suppressing membrane, you then put a load of wood chippings. And I just looked at this material, this membrane, and I just thought, this is ridiculous. This sums up our complete and utter failure to engage with our planet, that we would rather see our country, our earth, where we are from, our land, covered in plastic film to suppress natural growth i mean there it is in a nutshell that really explains where we're at and for many institutions the fact that stuff grows like hedges like grass verges is a problem and i think that that to me is really interesting in terms of how far we've come you know, back in the past, you wanted stuff to grow because you wanted the resource, you wanted the grass to make to hay, you wanted grasses to turn into mats, you wanted bushes to grow shoots that you could cut to then make baskets from, you wanted bushes, shrubs to grow uh, timber so that you could make charcoal or use for the fire. And actually, all we want to do in present society is just cut everything. We just wish it would go away. I've even gone past some gardens where they've replaced the grass with a sort of looky-likey grass that doesn't need mowing. <laughs> you know, what the, What does that say about us? So how You know, how far we have come and how worrying it is, I think, that these kind of products are out there. What what does it say about where we are at, especially in the Western world in terms of our relation to our environment? One of the reasons I wanted to talk about hedgerows is because I miss them, which also is one of the reasons that I want to talk about your chapter under thatch, because you're talking about thatched roofs. And just for people who may not know what a thatched roof is, can you explain? Well, a thatched roof is uh, actually an, any roof that is made from a, a naturally organic growing material. So in Britain, we would thatch with um, predominantly with water reed, which is a very tall growing grass with a very thick stem. And you cut enough of that and you comb it out, and get it all tidy. That makes a lovely thatch. That's probably the most preferred um, type of thatching material but of course when we used to grow uh, a lot lot more wheat with a long straw so a straw that was sort of four to five foot long we used to thatch with wheat straw but you can actually thatch with any material i mean you can thatch with seaweeds you can thatch with grasses you can thatch with palm leaves all over the world we have used all sorts of different materials to create roofs to create protection from the elements and so how did you get involved in thatching? 
This was another one of my crazes. When when we made the series Tales from the Green Valley, one of my first challenges was to thatch a barn. Now, we, I had some uh, I had a wonderful uh, thatcher, a chap called Keith Payne uh, from Somerset, came up and he um, he taught me the basics of thatching. Uh, and it was a kind of bug that I got. I He showed me how to thatch one side of this barn and then I was kind of let loose and I just thatched the other side of it. And I, I just... I thoroughly enjoyed that process of using entirely natural materials with which to create a kind of waterproof roof. Quite remarkable. So I, I kind of got into that, and I got into it as part, partly as an archaeologist because when we look at archaeological excavations, we get these organic deposits. We don't know what what they used for thatching their roofs with. So if we can do environment, take environmental samples from these deposits, we might be able to, by looking at the weed seeds, by looking at the insects, we might be able to come to some conclusions about how they were thatching their buildings. So I kind of got into it in that sense. But of course, I, I also started using all sorts of different materials to thatch with. So bracken, uh, nettles, um, wheat, um uh, you know i just would, would i would anything i would try anything to see what kind of properties it had i was amazed to read in this so i knew that thatched roofs are a fire hazard but i was amazed to read that it was in 20 uh, 2012 12 12 in london there appeared an ordinance there could be no more thatched roofs because of the fire hazard they were yeah, very early on. So by the time we get to the 30, early 13th century, we are seeing an enormous growth in medieval cities. You know, that we, we, talk, we sometimes talk about this economic takeoff in the late 12th and into the 13th centuries. And as a reflection of that, you're getting sort of levels of urban density, you know, people literally living on top of each other. Uh, and you're also seeing a lot more crafts and industries as well. And of course, where you've got craft and industry, you've got fire. And where you've got fire and thatch, you have a natural hazard. So there's all sorts of ordinances which are passed throughout many cities, Exeter, Norwich, London, uh, Chester. Uh, throughout the country, these big medieval cities um, are passing laws to prevent, in some cases, new thatches going on. So if you already had your roof thatched, um, that was okay. But any new builds required um, tiles or slates. So what we see in the late 12th and early 13th century is the pickup of a new craft industry, the production of handmade tiles. So uh, moving along, we come to the craft of digging. Um, you say in this chapter, I can talk a good craft, but I am no craftsman. But you do say you're a good digger. And I think the love for digging started early. It's part of what made you an archaeologist. Yes, I, I got to be on, you know, I, I, like, I, like, I, like, I like digging. I used to like digging. It was one of these things you could switch off uh, at and just sort of dig away. Uh, I like digging potatoes. I like digging archaeological holes, uh, ditches. Uh, you know, th- there is a point when you get a bit fed up with it, a bit cold, wet and tired. Um, but it's one thing that I can do. It's one skill, one of the few skills that I do have. I mean, I mess around with a lot of crafts and I talk a lot of crafts and I've done a lot of crafts, uh, but I, I am not, I don't consider myself uh, a crafts, uh, craftsman or a craftsperson. Um, my interest is always in the use of materials, in the history, the archaeology, and trying to think about the the context of the craft, if you like, you know, it is, as the subtitle says, it's that inquiry into the true meaning of crafts and what we can, what the crafts can tell us about past societies. But one of the few things I can do particularly well is I can dig holes of all different shapes and sizes because I did it for about seven years as an archaeologist. And and it's funny what you find, you know, people think about archaeologists and 
you know, often you come drop these images of uh, of um, of an archaeologist sort of propped over a skeleton, gently brushing the dust away from some uh, grave goods that have been laid next to the skeleton, or taking an environmental sample, and all these sort of very quite technical things. Um, but what you don't seem to see a lot of is the the, the sheer pick and shovel work that you have to do to actually get to the archaeological deposits. And, and I worked on a number of sites all over the country uh, where, you know, ar- archaeologists, you can't use a machine because it's an archaeological deposit. So you have to go in there and just use pick and shovel. And, and at times you're, you're moving, you know, um, c- cubic tons of material in order to go down. And, and if you think about somewhere like London, which has been occupied for the best part of 2000 years, you've got something like four to five metres of build-up of material. So from the present road surface, four to five metres down, um, you're getting to the sort of Roman and and prehistoric deposits. So you've got a lot of digging to do. And, of course, on most building sites nowadays, uh, you absolutely don't want your staff digging with pick and shovel because you get all sorts of litigation issues when they get back problems and sickness. So at all points, you're looking to use mechanical machinery. Archaeologists don't have that luxury, so you have to be able to dig holes. And, you know, I spent a lot of those seven years working as an archaeologist with the pick, with the shovel and, you know, singing away to my heart's content, digging a hole. You say that the best tool for turning wilderness ground into something cultivatable, which is obviously a big raison d'etre of digging, is a mattock. What What is a mattock? Oh, a mattock is like, um, it's like a pick, basically. But when you think of a pick, a pick has got points at either end, whereas a mattock has got a sort of flat blade. It's got a flat blade, one which is vertically set, one on the other side of which is horizontally set. Um, So the horizontally set blade is the one you use to sort of really dig into the ground. And the vertically set blade, so it looks a bit more like an axe, is what you might use to kind of cut weeds or break in through stones. It's a, it's a, it's it's a, it's a beast of a digging tool. It really is. Uh, and you know, archaeologists, if if you're on a deposit which isn't that important, you know, is maybe a sort of nineteenth century deposit, and you push for time, and you know, your boss is breathing down your neck to get through that so you can get down onto the medieval stuff. You might get your mattock out and um, wield it liberally. Uh, to break up that deposit and shovel it out. The further down you go and the closer you get to more sensitive archaeological remains, obviously you you might then be a little bit more gently with a mattock. I mean, a very gently used mattock can be um, very judicious in terms of how it separates out the deposit, but then you might go down to your trowel. So you, you kind of mix it up. But yeah, a mattock, uh, that's the way to break ground. And, I, and I've done that, you know, in a, in a couple of places I've used a mattock to break um, what we might call virgin ground. And um you know, it's hard work. It's hard work. I saw that one piece of advice you were given was to, you're right-handed and you were told to switch it to the left hand every 10 minutes. Yes. You know, I can't stress this enough that it's um, any sort of outside work. You know, I, I get accused quite often and I don't care of having a romanticised view of the past. I, I, like I say, I worked as an archaeologist, so I have worked in uh, and digging. I've worked in some pretty grim circumstances doing manual labour, you know. And, and this is someone who's got sort of seven degrees, uh, sorry, three degrees, uh, and I, you know, uh, and 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 there I am in the sort of bottom of a hole, um, 
you know, with pick and shovel. And you do, I did question where I'd gone wrong in life kind of thing. Um, so I've seen, I've seen the sharp end of kind of physical manual labor in the, in the coldest months of the year. Um, my over romanticized view of things is that, uh, you know, if you're going to be out doing stuff outside for long periods, as all good uh, craftspeople know, or people that work outside, you have to look after your body. And I think when I first started out, I didn't know that. I didn't have that wisdom. Uh, and, you, you know, if you're not careful, you can end up being lopsided. If you just shovel, okay, with one side of the body, you're always shoveling the same direction, you get really good at it. So you don't want to give it up and you don't want to switch to the other hand. But you have to do that because otherwise you twist yourself, you pull your muscles and you can you, you can turn yourself into a, a funny a funny old shape if you if you don't switch over regularly. And certainly now I've got older, um, I'm, I'm you know in my forties now. I really, I really. In fact, I was digging a hole. I had a matic out this weekend, uh, last weekend, because I, I want to put um, a hole moak in, an oak tree in, and I just needed to check the ground where I wanted to put it. And I got the old matic out, and I gave it a couple of swings, and I had that familiar sort of twinge in my my right shoulder, and I thought, oh, I better stretch properly before I do this, because being the age I am now, it takes a lot longer to get it takes a lot longer to get better after you after you damage yourself. Sage advice. So in the last chapter before the postscript, you talk about baskets and boats, which don't obviously seem linked until you find out that baskets can be boats. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, one of the things I've observed is that you can use different techniques, techniques that you think relate to specific crafts, actually translate to lots of different crafts and I think what I try and do in that chapter is I try and create a link between the humble basket um, and uh, a boat and and in particular I look at for example I look at the uh, I mean I've just made a basket to three weeks ago out of willow and it's a small little woven basket well you scale that thing up you get it to a certain size you stitch a cowhide onto it onto the outside of it and you can hop in it and paddle across a lake uh, uh, and we have these things called coracles over here and they're archaeologically te- attested right the way back into prehistory these things are being used uh, and they were being used right into up into the 19th into the early 20th century in some parts of wales um so these coracles, these baskets with this cowhide stitched on them, they're the same techniques, though. You know, that to make a basket that I could put on the table in front of me now and to make a coracle requires essentially the same techniques. And I do the same thing with the, the Sussex Trug, which is quite a, a famous basket in, in, in the British Isles. Uh, it's, a, it's a basket from where I grew up. Uh, its exact origins are unknown, but the word trug is of uh, of old English uh, derivation. So I, I would have thought it's a style of basket that's been made for quite some time down in Sussex, hundreds of years. Um, and in fact, the very same techniques are used in the making of that basket. Very similar techniques are used to make a Viking longboat. And I just draw that comparison that in many ways, the strength of the trug is lightweight. It's incredibly strong. When you scale that up to the Viking longboat, you end up with... I think a piece of technical innovation that is almost unsurpassed in the craft world. You know, love or hate the Vikings for what they did. There's no doubt about it. Those ships are remarkable feats of craft engineering. 
in the postscript, you say you get angry about the lack of baskets in our lives. And I sympathise with this quite a lot. A few years ago, I made a radio documentary about basket makers in South Central Kentucky. And in the process, I was given a basket. And I thought, this is brilliant. It's so much handier than a bag because I can put everything out in it and it stays in its place. I, I still use it. Yes. I mean... Um... I think my 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 irritation comes sometimes that when we talk about crafts, you often get people uh, who say, "Oh, what you know, what, what what crafts? What could crafts possibly do for the British economy?" Let's say, um, "What a load of basket makers sat around making baskets? Is that what that's not going to get us out of the recession?" You know, and and you know, I, I guess I take their point. Uh, you know, it's the point that you make. Uh, they are remarkable. Baskets are remarkable. That you know, what can't you do with a basket? And I actually look at you know, there were examples of houses from the 8th century in Ireland that were excavated. They were essentially big upturned baskets. Um, they're remarkable. Uh, all across the world, we have used different types of materials to make receptacles, to make vessels. Uh, and I, I, I do get irritated at the way in which they're dismissed because they are a resource, or at least they are made from resources uh, that grow freely. You know, these things that we're currently, you know, these hedgerows that we're thrashing just to stop them from growing because it's a nuisance that they grow. Well, the material we're thrashing off them could just as well be used to, to make the baskets that we put our shopping in when we go to the, the shopping mall instead of the plastic bags, these ghastly plastic bags. You know, it's, it's again about, about the sort of dislocation, I think, in the way we treat the world around us. Uh, and, you know, one of the things I'm doing with this my, my little hedgerow project at the mo- moment is I've been using really trying to find really poor basket making materials from the hedge at uh, the bottom of my garden and seeing if I can make a basket from the poorest possible materials. Um, and, you know, that's because that's the way I sort of do craft in a slightly weird way. Um, but I, I've made a very respectable little basket out of some old gladioli um, leaves uh, and some some bramble cane, some rough bramble cane from the hedge, and I just think they're incredibly resourceful baskets. Uh, they need a lot. They need a lot more respect. So we do come to this postscript, which you've titled "Craft and Contemplation" or "Craft and Contemplation," and you reference John Ruskin, who says he talks of how the factory robs us of contemplation, and you agree with this. And you're also talking about how our disconnection from crafting or crafting has to do with our illiteracy. Of power, we do live in a world where, um, you know, we can just turn button, flick buttons, flick switches, and we've got as much power as we want. And we've we haven't, as a generation, and you know, my parents' generation as well, we haven't had cause to think about where that power comes from. Uh, and in a world in a world where you don't have that power, you tend to think a lot more critically about the use of energy and power uh, to make things. Uh, and I think it's a literacy. It's about literacy, about power, and about materialism as well. You know, we waste we waste tragically on this planet, which is neither good for the environment. It's neither good for ourselves and our own personal economies. Um, we we waste really poorly, and and we and we buy poorly as well. We buy substandard products because we don't really know the value of certain materials and the effectiveness of certain materials. Um, and I think a lot of that literacy comes from the fact that we don't make. We don't make anymore, you know. The British education system, and I'm sure it's the same in the United States, you know, you can get a kid at the age of sort of three, four, going into school, and what are they making? What, what are they actually doing most of the time? I And I don't 
have a lot of faith in the, the education system. We're not seeing kids work with a rich variety of materials. Doesn't, there doesn't need to be a specific goal, but just having kids working with wood, working with clay, working with uh, textiles, you know, working with anything, um, because we're not making and building up from that towards more sort of technical making and crafting and you know, structural properties of certain materials, because we're not doing that at a very young age, I think there's a dislocation. We don't actually know what materials are and how they work. Uh, and I think that's part of the social ill. And I think if we knew how much energy goes into making objects, we wouldn't waste and throw things away in quite the way we do. Right. You end the book with this sentence, to be crafty or crafty is all about resourceful living and about going back to the basics, a mindful life achieved through beautiful simplicity, which is a very nice way of looking at things. But how simple is your life? Uh, it's not. It's... it's um... It seems to get ever more complicated by the day. And I actually had a brief flirtation with uh, Twitter and Instagram. I, I tore my Achilles heel, actually. And uh, so I was stuck in, uh, stuck in a chair for about five or six days. It's terrible. Uh, you know, I've always been a very active person. Terrible, but very humbling, actually, in many respects. Uh, so I thought, oh, well, I'll do this Twittery thing, you know, and post some stuff. Uh, and I can honestly say that after five days of that, I actually felt a bit ill <laughs> with the whole digital world. And I spend far too much time in front of a computer typing. You know, I work at a university. There's an enormous amount of bureaucracy in, in the running and management of universities. I, I have the pleasure of teaching some wonderful students for a handful, uh, you know, a few hours a week. Um, I don't get enough time to to do and to make and I know that makes me happy uh but I I shouldn't be too conceited um uh, because I do have two young children uh, and they they you know there's an enormous amount of craftsmanship that goes into raising young kids um so I have a very complicated set of circumstances at the moment but I think what I'm trying to say in the book uh, is that I do think society has robbed us of these opportunities to just think and to be I think there's too much noise. I think there's too many screens. I see a generation, certainly in Britain, of young people, because I deal with them all day, uh, every day at university. I see young people who are like rabbits caught in the headlights of this oncoming digital age. And I don't think it's good for them. I don't think they're happy. Uh, and I, I do think you can call this romantic. I don't care. I think we need to turn off digital. I think we need digital detox. Uh, and we need to encourage people to just sit somewhere in silence and make something because it does make us better. It makes us feel better. Uh, and I think that's something we've lost uh, and I think it's something that we need to bring back through formal education, through creating the space and through promoting it as well. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything that you wanted to say that I didn't give you the chance to say? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I think that sentiment at the end, really, if there's anything uh, uh, that I'd like to say to people listening, uh, and I don't want to come across as patronising when I say this, you know, do 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 find that time uh, to to do something to make something um you know even if you're stuck in a, a flat in the middle of a city uh somewhere 
uh, you know, you can cook, you can bake, you can do those things. You can sit and do a craft uh, in, in, in your chair, in your, in your kitchen or in your lounge. If you want to get out and about, and you know, I talk a lot about rural crafts, um, there are all these kind of edge lands and uh, green wedges in city spaces and suburban areas, which are unloved. You know, the corners of car parks, sidings, uh, you know, they, those little areas. Try and get involved. Get in touch with the council and the municipal authorities. Can you get involved? Can you do something? Can you manage it? Can you care for it? And can the materials you get from managing and caring that be used to make beautiful objects? Well, you're a very eloquent advocate for the value of crafting. Um, Alexander Langlands, thank you so much for taking part in this New Books in Folklore podcast, which is just one podcast channel on the New Books network. And I hope you have a lovely rest of the day. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much.